Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Florian B., Cindy W., Dave V., and Jackie A. Alex Molyneux is our guest today. Alex is CEO of Galena Mining, an Australian-focused lead-silver developer of the Abra project in Western Australia. The company is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol G1A. Alex is also involved with a number of other companies, including Argosi Minerals, Tempest Resources, Arzaga Metals, and Metalla Royalty. Alex, welcome, and thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So, Alex, fill in the audience for those who are not familiar with you. Give us some of your background and what you're focused on today. I, uh, I've i had more than a 20-year career in the uh, mining industry. It's basically split into two parts, which is uh, in the first half of my career, I was a specialist metals and mining investment banker. And I worked for a couple of banks there and finished my, my banking career as a managing director level banker at uh, Citibank, uh, uh, basically the, the head of metals and mining for Asia and Australia at the time. And then uh, one of my clients asked me to join his business uh, and that was Robert Friedland. And he, he basically brought me over to the uh, mining and exploration side of the business uh, as, a, as an employee of uh, Ivanhoe Mines Group. And uh, I sort of worked, worked for Ivanhoe Mines in, in various capacity for a number of years. And then um, subsequently in 2012, when, when Rio Tinto Group took over the old Ivanhoe Mines, and, and it's now called Turquoise Hill Resources, um, I kind of started to uh, focus more on personal investments in the mining and exploration space and then getting involved in uh, board roles or um, or even management roles or, or, or things like that around uh, around generally around assets where I had some investment exposure you, you know that that, that kind of um, uh, involvement so um, that's why I guess today I have a number of different board exposures uh, and uh, exposures to different commodities and different different metals, um, and I think that that always serves you well somewhat in the in the mining and exploration space because uh, you know you have a different uh, th these metals kind of operate in different cycles and whatnot. When the industrial metals are not doing so well, you might find gold's going very well and. Uh, you know, it just uh, I have a great academic interest in the in the industry and an insatiable appetite, insatiable appetite to learn more about different um, minerals and and geology and country settings and 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 whatnot. So so that's that's uh, how I find myself uh, with a bit of a diverse suite of things on my plate. Well, I wanted to ask you, uh, thinking as you were talking there. Can you share with us maybe uh, some key experience or lessons learned working with uh, Robert Friedland and the Ivanhoe Group 
back in during that time and, and obviously back then they were focused in Mongolia and also with that uh, the debacle with uh, Turquoise Hill today in Mongolia do you, do you see them finding their way out of that uh, and, and coming to some resolve with the government there? So firstly with Robert I think uh, you know th th there's two features to his personality that I think make him a great um, explorer. Uh, the first thing is, is he he he's the ultimate optimist. Uh, I, I mean, by the way, I think I think you find this trait is fairly common in 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 the billionaire group. But Robert is, um, you know, he's not one to kind of uh, get put off by a drill hole that comes up with no mineralization. It's more around uh, where are we going to uh, drill the next hole and how are we going to avoid this problem? So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, is he has a very um, long-term view. Uh, he just keeps at something until it comes good. Um, the new Ivanhoe Mines is a perfect example. I mean, that, that business has been around for decades uh, within his uh, portfolio and um, you know the, the main asset in there Kamoa has uh, over time really morphed into something that's uh, that's much larger much higher grade than than people were expecting years ago and that's that's the trade of persistence and sticking with that asset and um, and and you know not giving up on it and it's now probably the world's best undeveloped copper deposit so I think I think that's 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 something I learned from working with Robert. You've just got to, particularly in the mining space where, where just when things might be coming together at an asset level, the cycle might work against you. And then you've got to batten down the hatches and go through that negative point in the cycle. But eventually you'll find everything comes together. As long as, the, as long as you've been right on your choice of the underlying asset and you know it's good quality underneath, eventually, you know, if, it, if it's in a tough country, that country eventually comes good. If it's in a commodity that, goes through a bit of a negative phase, eventually that commodity comes good and you just have to kind of stick with it. So now in terms of uh, Mongolia, I, you know, of course I'm, I'm very experienced with Mongolia. I basically, you know, there was a five year period in my life where I spent probably half my time up there and uh, uh, when I was working for Robert. Uh, mm. Mongolia is, is a tough, tough country. Um, you know, Robert navigated it very well. I think um, these days it's, you know, I, I think unfortunately for Mongolia is when the commodity prices were hot, when, when things were really booming, they sort of took the wind out of development in their country. So, you know, just, it, you know, if you remember the, the big boom in almost every metal last decade, um, uh, you know, there was a lot of investment going into the metal space. And in 2006, Mongolia basically iced investment in their country by bringing out a windfall profits tax on iron ore and gold and copper and a strategic investment law that made it more difficult for foreigners to invest. And then as, as the financial crisis hit, they repealed those laws But they in 2009, but they sort of missed the boat. Now, I think the struggle for Mongolia is... Uh, and, and at various times, whenever there's been big boosts of investment in the country, in the sector, the Mongolians kind of uh, have tended towards 
uh, restrictive, introducing new restrictive laws. And now I think the Mongolians struggle with the fact that people are very tentative to invest in that country. Uh, Ayatollah is really the, the major, major investment going on there. It's by far the, the largest share of foreign investment. And, uh, you know, um, even today you can see that that the Mongolians really question Ayatollah, the, 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 the foreign investment role, the foreign investors' role in Ayatollah, which is now really Rio. Uh, they question Rio's role in their country, in their economy, and tied up with big assets. And the debate doesn't really help anyone. Uh, so I really don't know what happens. I know that, that Rio needs more clarity from the Mongolian government. Um, you know, in order to move forward with, with the next stage of uh, financing Ayatollah and, uh, you know, but, but the Mongolian government's not, not one to respond to sort of commercial requirements very easily and as it shouldn't, it's a government, it's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, 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 it's a democratic government and it's more focused on its uh, domestic policy issues and whatnot. So it's just a tough, tough position. I'm not, I'm not sort of crazy excited about where Turquoise Hill has got to. By the way, it's got to below its financial crisis share price levels. Um, been, I think, I think this is a good indication of what country risk can do to people. It's been more than ten years of, you know, uh, more than ten years since the, or around about ten years since the investment agreement was first signed for that asset billions of dollars have been invested and the stock price has gone has gone backwards in a big way over a decade so right yeah, yeah. no I, I think there's a an interesting three play there with with entree uh and you have uh, turquoise and you have rio and uh, so it's really <laughs> interesting debacle they have and the ivanhoe mines assets in in south africa and the DRC are just absolute monsters. Um, so, yeah. and, and a Freeland's ability to go through and grease the wheels and do what they need to do there um, has been absolutely fantastic. Um, so it'll be interesting to kind of see what happens. And, and you know, all, the other piece too is you had uh, what Bolivia, Venezuela, Ecuador all got grabby towards the end of the last cycle and uh mm -hmm. you you saw what happened there and then of course you know ecuador is a good example of a complete reversal the other direction and now there's a bunch of uh you know stuff going on in the country for mining so it's really interesting how some of these governments get grabby at the top of these cycles and then they kind of wash out with the rest of them in the bottom and, and kind of start to turn their policies back so it's kind of a <laughs> interesting met, turn you no know, you know andrew i met i met um uh, a couple of months ago, there, there was a there was a minister from the Mongolian government in Hong Kong, and uh, one of his uh, one of his advisors had called up and said, oh, "Why don't you come and have lunch with this guy?" And I said, "Okay, no problem." I went had had lunch with him, and he said to me, "He said, I don't understand what's going on. You know, we've sure we had periods where we had these laws that were hostile to foreign investment, but um, you know." The, uh, we've repealed all of that. Um, we want guys like you to come back, like you were a great promoter of Mongolia in the day, and we want guys like you to come back. And I sort of said, you know, there's, I said to him, there's, there's, there's a, you know, for us in the mining space, mining is a global industry and exploration is a global industry. And there's a, there's just about 190 countries in the United Nations. And, uh, you know, so we can sort of go anywhere and, and, and it's not about, um, 
you know, the law of the time, once you've sort of introduced these laws uh, and, and repealed them and then introduced them and repealed them, you've set up a cycle and it's kind of like a once bitten, twice shy uh, process. You can't just sort of go, oh, sorry, we got rid of those those laws and everyone arrives tomorrow with more investment money. People are very uh, tentative with respect to sort of the, the some of these countries uh, and it's much harder to bring the investment back uh, it, 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 it can die in a second with one legal change, but it takes years to get it back. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. That's that's certainly the, the, the fact. Um, well, let's move on. Let's get into uranium, yep. Alex. Um, yep. What are your thoughts on this market as things stand now? And where does uranium fall with regards to your most favored material in the mining and natural resource sector? Well, uranium... Uranium's probably my, my is my most favourite material. The uh, I think in the introduction you forgot to mention that I, I, I'm advisor to a uranium investment fund, a specialist uranium investment fund, which is uh, which is managed by Oklana Asset Management, which is a Singapore-based you know multi-billion-dollar asset manager, and the uranium fund is called the OAM Uranium Opportunity. Um, it's actually uh, you know, sort of a daily quoted Bloomberg fund, and uh, we've been making investments in uranium since uh, the end of October last year. In in uranium, it, it is my favourite commodity, but it's been my favourite commodity for a while. And, and 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 you know, just like a lot of people in uranium, it's taken longer for the turnaround to happen. The fundamentals are stronger than almost any other commodity I've seen. I've never in my career seen a a commodity where the spot price of that commodity uh, falls to a level where roughly 70% of production is, uh, is, is cash flow negative uh, and, and it falls to that level and sustains it for quite some time. I've never seen uh, a commodity where such a large amount of production is cut back on the supply side um, and, and yet the, the response is quite slow on on the on the price movement of that commodity but the thing with uranium is it is unique because it has a very long working process cycle and it has uh, um, a multi-stage uh, sort of creation of turning the the, the, the product into uh, the, the the raw material into the finished product and as a result of that there's always been massive inventories through the through the industry and that that creates a buffer which does allow for changing fundamentals to take more time to um, to, to 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 take action. So, you know, just, just for example, by the way, you know, coal has about a six-week use in cycle. It, 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 the seaborne coal market, uh, we mine it yeah, generally in New South Wales, or Queensland, or Indonesia. We put it on a boat, and it's vaporised six weeks later in a um in you know in a power station in japan korea or, or china and uh whereas uranium um you produce uranium oxide it's a class seven radioactive material it can take a lot longer to uh, it sits at the port for longer because it takes longer to get boats that can handle that material then it uh then it goes to a conversion goes to conversion enrichment fuel fabrication all of these stages by the way can be in different continents that the utility may have booked services uh, from different service providers to do the conversion enrichment 
services in um, totally different places type thing or, or, or certainly the fuel fabrication. So you can have a 18 month, two year working process cycle there. Um, the risk to running out of uranium uh, have, is, is enormous to the utility because not only is, um, is the, the capital cost of the nuclear power station the biggest cost of nuclear power generation and therefore getting efficient use out of that capital, i.e. having it always fed and never running out of fuel is more important than the cost of fuel itself. But also the utilities have to book all these services together, right? So, 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 so you don't want to have paid for enrichment capacity and, and, and not have enough certainty of supply of the uh, uranium oxide. Uh, you don't want to have paid for or, or you know, booked or contracted for fuel fabrication services and not be able to supply the raw material. So the, um, now, you know, what I focus on increasingly in my uh, career, you know, as I invest in uranium is uh, really two things. One is um, I look at the, um, the, the, the inventory situation extremely closely and I've spent a lot of time modeling inventories and looking at uh, the inventories that were built uh, prior to Fukushima. So, so, you know, in the decade before Fukushima, utilities basically bought around about 400 million pounds of uranium more than they needed in that decade period, right? So every year on average, they overbought and they, and, and I'm talking about what they, what they bought in spot market, what they contracted for future years um, and uh, and then Fukush and the reason why they were building that those inventories was uh, the market was already very tight and China uh, had announced a massive growth program in in the uh, in the nuclear power space and um, there were a few signals that uh, supply was unreliable so a few uh, issues uh, with permitting and construction of, of, of mines that utilities are waiting to come on. And, and this confluence of factors created uh, this build-up of an, that they always carry in inventory, but they in that 10-year period, they bought an extra 400 million pounds of inventory. And then, of course, Fukushima happened. You take one key customer out of the market and it changes the dynamic. And since Fukushima, on average, utilities have been buying uh, between 50 and 80 million pounds a year less than they're actually consuming in their in their nuclear power generation. So, by my mind, when I when I look at these numbers, where we're at today actually is we're getting towards a, a position where utility inventories is what you would say is long term average, but. Uh, if the demeanour is one that there's there's still a comfort oversupply, the utilities can can theoretically continue to underbuy, but you know they've only got about a hundred million pounds left or 150 million pounds left to where they're at zero discretionary inventory. So, in my view, now, now will the utilities let it go to zero? Uh, probably not. But if they did let it go to zero it would mean that the underbuying could continue until 2022. I just don't, I don't see that happening. But, um, but what it means is the point at which they stop underbuying is still somehow associated with the 
decisions of of individual people and, and committees or whatnot inside these utilities. So it's a sentiment driven thing. It's not something we can predict. If someone says uranium is going to turn around 2019, 2020 or 2021, I'll say, well, well that, that's you're just making a bet on the sentiment inside the utilities because, because based on the inventory position they have, they could technically last until 2022 without uh, increasing their buying. Um, so, so, you know, my contention on uranium is it will and must turn around the fundamentals in terms of the actual deficit in the actual production of uranium uh, uh, and the, the cost of producing uranium mean that uranium has to be in a normalized price range of 45 to, to 75 US dollars a pound and it has to turn around before 2022. Um, I think the uranium market's already been very constructive. I think I've always said that for uranium, we'll see increased liquidity um, will be associated with uh, a normalization of the market. And already this year and last year have shown uh, more liquidity in the uranium market than than uh, 2015, 2016, and, and 17. And, um, and you know, prices are 25, 30% uh, higher than they were uh, on the floor, and, and they're not showing a lot of downside potential right now. So I think, I think the uranium industry is constructive. Um, I think it's already started its re-rating. I think we can say the worst is behind us. But we may, it may all happen before Christmas, uh, or it may happen next year or the year after, or you know, and it may continue to just be a constructive build. It might be that this year's price is 25 and next year's price is 35 and the price after is 45, and we don't get a massive uh, run up. Although, although the longer this is taking, the more potential uranium has to overshoot above the normalized price range. And where I'm at is, is that an overshoot is becoming really very, very likely. So, you know, I start to think that prices of $100 a pound, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this because when people say numbers like this, they get called crazy. But, but frankly, utilities will be at zero inventories by 2022. They need to buy 200 million pounds uh, of material a year uh, from then on. And, um, you know, there's, there's only 140 million pounds of mine supply and less of it, and it's going down, not up. And there's only 24 million pounds of secondary supply. And by the way, uh, that goes down when, when, when there's more actual purchasing of uranium because this enrichment underfeeding sort of swings in the other direction. So, you know, to me, there's there's a, there's a sort of a crisis brewing, and it's it it could very well lead to an an, an overshoot, or it's likely to lead to an overshoot. I think I think uranium invest investors will be very much rewarded for their patience. And in terms of clear fundamentals, it's so easy to read. Um, we don't in uranium, we don't care too much about macro factors because it takes so long to build a nuclear power station and there's so much sort of government investment in a lot of the new growth in nuclear power like in uh, in China, Russia and these kind of places that whether or not China's GDP goes up or down, you know, the uranium demand for the next five years is basically set because, uh, 
you know, these these the the new the growth in these um, nuclear power stations are uh, uh, they're financed uh, these stations. They've broken ground on them. Also, you know, nuclear versus coal and gas, because things like coal and gas, the main cost of generation is the fuel itself. Whereas it, in nuclear, because it's it's capital cost appreciation of the cost of that power station, which is which has happened years ago. Once your power station is running, what happens when when the grid needs less power is you switch off your coal and your gas first, and you keep the 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 nuclear power station running. That's the more cost effective thing for the utility to do when there is an economic downturn and industrial users need less less power so you find that utilization of existing reactors is very steady and you find that um, at least for sort of a five-year horizon the growth of new reactors coming online is is quite certain and, and and tends not to fluctuate with with macro affairs so not only do i think the underlying um the underlying uranium market is is awesome uh, the fundamentals are amazing and, and, and probably clearer to read than any other commodity. Uh, but the other thing is, is you know, for, for investors in the broader mining complex that, that get concerned from time to time about, about macro factors and are, is there a recession coming and whatnot? Well, uranium is one of those commodities that, that doesn't correlate with, with industrial production and things like recessions in the same way that, say, base metals do or... Um, or you know iron ore, so uh, that's why I think it's uh, it's it's probably my favourite underlying commodity for now. You covered a lot of points and and well summarised. Um, and you reminded me I need to need to catch up with someone over at Clanner uh, uh, uh with the uh, the folks over there, a manager or something to to possibly have them on for a show. And yep. and like you said, there's there is just really nothing like it. The the thesis is very simple yet very long um in terms of how it goes and so it, it really is that and uh it's it's really a simple to understand it's just i think the biggest test for everybody in this sector uh to the point where they're crazy is is the patience and the sitting on the hands is really what i think we all deal with uh you know on a monthly and quarterly and yeah. annual basis well i want to ask you a few other things on uranium uh are there any thoughts on this nuclear fuel group post section 232? Is there anything important here in your mind, or is it just really a bit of noise compared to the cornerstone fundamentals? I think some of these companies uh, did themselves a little bit of a disservice where in the in the lobbying to achieve something for the American uranium industry, which I think is 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 uh, you know was was very valid. Um, you know, they used rhetoric that, that hurt them when 232 didn't go their way. So, you know, saying things like um, the industry will be decimated, there will be no US uranium industry, you know, then of course they wonder why when 232 didn't happen, uh, their stocks basically got sold back to, I mean, I mean, the, the US uranium producer stocks, um, energy fuels, UR energy, or, uh, uh, and then the, the explorers like Azagi uranium, uh, their shares uh, at at levels, you know, of three years ago when uranium was at eighteen dollars a pound. Uranium is forty percent higher today. Yet their shares have retraced further 
than where they should have. And I think it's because if you're an investor in a company who's telling people, if I don't get a 232 outcome, I'm decimated, um, it sort of doesn't, it, it doesn't work well. I, I think those, those shares are very cheap, by the way, um, as a result of how it played out. Now, um, there's been some people saying, oh, you know, listen, the, the two proponents, Energy Fuels and UR Energy, uh, I've had some people say, oh, Zaga Uranium will do very well because they kept out of the group and UEC kept out of the group and the utilities the utilities will, will have it in for Energy Fuels and, 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 and UR Energy. But the fact is, is Uranium is a global market. Uh, it's a commodity. There's a terminal price. So whether or not the US utilities care to avoid recontracting with UR energy and energy, energy fuels doesn't really make a difference. Once once contracting comes back and the price normalises, they'll get the benefit of that price. Uh, and as a result, their stocks, like all US uranium exposures right now, are very, very, are very, very cheap. I think there was a massive capitulation trade that, that happened there in July and, uh, I, I, and it's continued into August. And I think it's definitely... It's definitely over overshot there, and their businesses will do very well. And and that and now what they need to do is re-engage with the investment community and explain why two three two would have been a huge benefit for them. However, in a normalised uranium price environment, they all have very very good prospects. Um, you know, uh, Blake I think made a good point in uh, in one of his Sasaki uranium. Uh, uh, press releases where where he sort of basically said, listen, I want, you, you know, he said such, such, there was some text in there where he basically pointed out that his Dewey Burdock project has, uh, hasn't come into production because it's still going through permitting and, and, and final engineering. And I think he made the point that the economics based on his, the studies of his project and whatnot are, are world class. So regardless of 232, He's got an asset that's international. He used the words internationally competitive, and I agree with him. Um, I, by the way, I also think uh, UR Energy's assets are internationally competitive in terms of their cost structure, and they're fully capitalised in terms of built. So, so UR Energy, you know, has to re-engage with its investors, all of these companies do, and explain why um, why they're not going to be decimated. Um, and two three two would have merely accelerated an outcome, but at 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 seventy bucks a pound uranium, they'll all do very well. Yes, absolutely, and that's that's the whole point. Is it's not going to be decimated because, like you just said, sixty dollar uranium, seventy dollar uranium. This industry solves itself, and you don't need any yes. special two thirty two or any of that crap to to get where you need to go. And any anybody in the U.S. who can't. Uh, turn a profit at 60, 70 uranium needs to get the hell out of the business. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, yep. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. And, you know, one of the other things, uh, you know, I think investors should be prepared for 2022. And you mentioned that. And, and I know we've mentioned 2022 a little bit here as well um, is really kind of the scenario that people should really prepare themselves for, because if you're kind of prepared for what could be kind of a worst case or, or worser case scenario, I think you're going to turn out to do very well, and and that means, you know, things like cash and and plays into that planning. Yeah. Um, and I want to ask you, what do you see? Uh, and I think you might have touched on it already, but what do you see as a key driver 
here for uranium and what do you see as a time frame? Are you are you firmly of the belief that we're at a 2021-2022 time frame for the real heat or do you see things moving sooner? No, I, I do see things moving sooner. What, 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 what I find difficult to judge is, is, is the sort of the pace and level. So right now I feel like uh, you know, when the when the sort of the the summer quiet finishes, I I feel like we see resume buying in in uranium, and and I'm sort of feeling to me, I kind of think a spot around thirty uh, is 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 a good number to be projecting for the year end. Uh, that's really based on Cameco's position and 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 them having to accelerate their buying in the second half of this year in in the spot market to meet their delivery commitments. I, th I think you know that they've cool, they cooled off their buying a little bit, you know, in, in the first half of this year, and it, it it sort of didn't really succeed in 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 sending the uranium price lower. A, 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 a funny thing pe people have to understand about Cameco is right now having shut Macarthur River, and Cameco is a key proponent in in the industry right now. I mean, it, there's I, I, I watch Cameco and 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 Kazadam Prom very very closely, and a Cameco. Um, Cameco's issue is is they had to shut Macarthur River because they were losing too much money on it. However, now they have you know when, when I was CEO of Paladin and we shut Langer Heinrich, uh, we went and we 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 sort of we we made the decision to shut it down in consultation with, in a way with with customers and what was achievable in getting out of fixed contract commitments. So we went to sort of customers and we we settled out fixed delivery commitments at the same time as we we closed close the mine. So we actually got, uh, now the reason was to mitigate risk. So we, we actually got some financial benefit out of closing out some of those contracts. But uh, the reason was to mitigate financial risk. You couldn't possibly have a company that wasn't operating uranium mine that had um, delivery commitments at a fixed price to sell uranium, right? Uh, because if uranium price went above the fixed commit commitment price then you'd lose a lot of money and uh that's generally that's generally the uh that's that's the business of trading companies that's not the business of publicly listed mining companies so that's what that's what we did now what what cameco did is they did something different they said listen the spot price is so low and our fixed delivery commitments average this price so what we'll do is uh we'll shut macarthur river and we'll buy in spot and we'll continue to maintain our fixed price and you know our, our contracts book. Now they've put themselves in an incredible position because, uh, firstly, is the market knows how much material Cameco needs to buy in spot because we know how much material they need to deliver and their fixed their fixed delivery uh, um, obligations, right? So the market. Can, can sort of play around this. The second thing for Cameco, frankly, is every for every dollar uranium increases now, so Cameco's already at a point where the spot price has moved up to a level where once you account for all their general and admin and the cost of care and maintenance and the whole thing, Cameco's already cash flow negative. And every dollar the uranium price goes up, the more money Cameco loses. So uh, this is why, for example, you know, Cameco tried to slow down their buying. I mean, I think they were hoping uranium went, went I, I, I think the feeling at Cameco was probably that they were the single influence that moved uranium from $18 a pound to $28 a pound. They were thinking, oh, if we just slow our buying, 
uranium will go back to $18 a pound, we'll be fine, right? <laughs> well, you know, it did come off, it's, it's a, it's a, but it's sticky around $25 a pound. I can tell you, like, all these traders, like Itachi and Macquarie and all these guys, they were looking at Cameco. Everybody, everybody's staring at Cameco. And unfortunately, Cameco didn't quite get where they wanted to. But um, I guess I'm, I'm saying two things here. I'm answering your question in explaining why I think uranium definitely moves further this year. And I think 30 is about right. But Cameco will only take it so far. We, we need the utilities to come back. And maybe they come back in the fall season this year, or, or maybe they come back next year. But um, and in my mind, that that's what moves it further above 30. But um, but the second thing I'm saying in this answer to this question is, we don't have any Cameco in our Ocklaner AM portfolio anymore, right? Um, because, and 90% of uh, sort of diversified investors that I speak to that think, oh, uranium fundamentals are really good. I want to get exposed to uranium. They're buying Cameco stock because particularly in North America, it's the benchmark stock. Whereas I say to you, listen, this is a benchmark in an industry that, that in their last results had $1.1 billion Canadian dollars of cash, $1.6 billion worth of debt, and they were losing $100 million a year cash flow wise, right? Now, uh, $900 million of their debt comes due in the next uh, in the next 30 months. So, and, and they can't refinance that debt with their main asset on care maintenance. So, so, so all of that's going to be repaid. So they've really got, uh, and then, you know, as they're burning cash, they've really got about $200 million worth of cash and 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 six hundred million dollars worth of debt, and and if uranium goes to fifty bucks a pound, uh, they're going to start losing two hundred million dollars a year, and 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 just when everyone's overjoyed that uranium markets really moved, they're going to say, now I'm going to restart Macarthur River, and by the way, that's going to cost me a hundred to two hundred million dollars of working capital. It's going to take me eighteen months, right? And 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 because people think people think a mine is like a Coca Cola bottling factory, right? You have all the bottles lined up. You close it one week because you haven't sold enough Coke. The next week you come in the syrups. The syrups waiting in the head. You just you just bring the employees back. You switch the power on and you make Coke, right? Now it's not like that with a mine. A mine, it you, you know requires the re-recruitment of the workforce. It requires the the workforce training to be updated, right? To, to to make sure they're going to be safe on the job. It will be. It's hard in the uranium industry to get experienced people. So so for the employees that have already moved on to other industries, they're working in diamond mines or copper mines, or they've gone into something else. You're going to have to find new people and and train them up to speed. You're going to have to then uh, invest in this working capital of. Um, of 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 ore on the rom pad of reagents and you know in, in in the plant and finished material uh you know heading out to the converters for delivery to utilities so so um you know it, it, it cannot cost less than 100 million canadian i, I think cost about 200 million canadian and it cannot take less than 18 months so you have this weird chemico is weirdly um you know Firstly is if uranium moves up to a level that doesn't warrant a MacArthur River restart, then Cameco is just a loss-making machine for years, right? Now, if it does go up to a level 
that warrants a a MacArthur River restart, um, then uh, you know, then of course that's good news in a way for investors. But uh, when I when I look at when I talk to investors and I look at how analysts cover it, generally people don't understand how much money and how long it will take to restart MacArthur River, and I believe that'll be disappointment for people. So I actually think in the uranium sector in general, Kazatomprom is the true uh is the true benchmark uh they produce they're roughly involved in one way or the other either their own production or in jvs uh they're involved in 40 percent of global uranium production uh they make positive cash flow in current uranium markets if the uranium price goes up to 40 bucks a pound uh their share price probably more than doubles and they double the dividend it's a much uh a better place to be for your benchmark than Cameco. And then for the rest of your investment, in a weird way, juniors like uh, UR Energy or Azagi Uranium or, or, you know, in Australia, Boss Resources, for example, or Bannerman, uh, these companies provide a lower risk exposure to the uranium price than Cameco does. Sure, some of them will you need to be prepared for dilution because if the uranium stays lower for longer, some of them will need to raise money. But over time, it was small amounts of money and they don't have debt in there that that can cause problems. And so, um, and they're not, they're not burning, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of cash a year in the same way that Cameco is. So, um, you know, so I think, I think Cameco is, is, is super interesting in, in the industry. I think, uh, I think they made a mistake not trying to close out more contracts. Um, I think they spent a lot of money on on GNA for a company that's not doing a lot of production. Um, so, you know, I definitely don't don't. I no longer see Cameco as a benchmark in the industry. That that'll probably change once they once they are back in production. They restart Macarthur River, but but for now, uh, I think I, I I think they've they've put themselves into a into a spot where they themselves are going to be the single driver of the next leg up of uranium price, and they're going to be the uh, the probably the the one participant in the industry that benefits least. And certainly, Camut goes and got themselves. They're in a position. They're in quite a pickle because if if this does last out till 2022, these low prices, they're going to be hurting, and uh, arguably potentially worse than some of the juniors in the space. Uh, Absolutely. And so, yep. so I think there's a challenge there. Well, I want to move on for the sake of time. And, and you yep. you kind of walked into this. So you've spent some time at Paladin uh, post-departure of, of the John Borjoff management team. Yep. What were the biggest challenges during your tenure at Paladin? And how was working with the Chinese and EDF during the time leading up to and during the administration? Yeah, I think I think uh, you know when I when I walked into Paladin, it was uh, you know it was it was roughly burning uh, you know more than forty million dollars a year negative cash flow. It, it had a in US dollar terms, it had a hundred million dollar market cap and eight hundred million dollars of liabilities. So um, you know, and and uranium price when I walked in was thirty six dollars a pound and. Uh, you know, our initial plan was we, we 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 quickly came up with a plan to make the business sustainable through um, 
massive, massive cost reductions. And uh, we did make, uh, we, we turned the business around and made a couple of quarters of um, operating cash flow positive and, and, and even net income profit. Um, and, and that was our goal to create a platform from which we could refinance these liabilities. Um, how, however, because otherwise it was just going to be liquidation. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but what happened was this uranium price then continued to decline and it, it had a precipitous fall and it, it ended up getting as low as $18 a pound, which was, which was well below you could re-engineer the cost of production at, at Langer Heinrich. I mean, I mean we, we, brought the, we brought the cost of production at Langer Heinrich down from like uh, $45 all in sustaining cash costs down to about uh, 26, 27. And, and that's how we thought that was our plan at, at $35, $30, dollars a pound uranium. We were going to eke out a small profit and our creditors were then going to um, give us time and, and restructure the debts. But when uranium went to 18, we had no choice but to approach our creditors, you know, in Australia, call it a voluntary administration restructure, which is a little bit like a chapter 11 process in the US where you seek protection from your creditors under the legal regime and you, you renegotiate with them there. We, we um, By the way, Paladin's assets are so great. We we continued to finance, refinance all the way through. We did bank loans, we refinanced them, we, um, how we, we, we did a new $110 million bond. We, so we, we, we were continuously able to raise a lot of capital all the way through and that, and that, was, uh, um, that, was, that was the key. Now, the, the, the two biggest issues we had with, the, with achieving an outcome for Paladin, which, which we did achieve something in the end, was number one was EDF. So we had a customer that had made a massive prepayment and they had an offtake contract which had a, a sort of a, a you know um, a, a, a floor price and a ceiling price, and um, and you know they weren't really incentivized to support a restructure because they their, their incentive was to sort of get out really to get out of the contract um, given how the uranium market had changed since they the time they entered into that contract so. That was they were one key creditor. The rest of our creditors were mainly bondholders and who who really wanted to support a you know a restructure and saw the value in getting equity in Paladin and the upside in the uranium industry that that was coming. Um, whereas that EDF as a creditor were differently motivated, uh, you know, because uh, get out of that contract and they could go and buy that uranium more cheaply elsewhere. So that was always a difficulty trying to. Um, keep them involved as a participant. And then the second was just dealing with a Chinese joint venture partner, not, not CNNC, a great, great company and, and, and uh, easy to deal with, but the, the joint venture agreement itself, um, you know, they had, you know, it was fairly restrictive on Paladin. And so it really made it difficult for us to sort of look at things like selling the assets to third parties as a way to, to, to bring in extra cash or or things like that. So we were sort of really stuck in in that JV in the way it is. And um, it, uh, you know, it was it, we, we sort of made, made the best of a difficult situation uh, that was that was made all the more difficult by, you know, uranium reaching its 18 year low during the very time we had to deal with these liabilities. So, um, you know, anyway, pa Paladin's, in a stronger shape now where 
it, it you know it, it relisted with only a hundred million dollar debt, a uh, bunch of cash in the bank that uh, Langer's Heinrichs on care and maintenance, so it's uh, it's um, it's 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 not burning as much cash now, and uh, you know it's it's very very well positioned for the return in the uranium cycle. But it was uh, you you really felt like you were going through the ringer and uh, many many late nights of of hard work and whatnot. So that's why in um, uh, in December of uh, 2017, I sort of said, you know, I announced that when the restructure was complete, when we find a new CEO, um, I'm going to 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 move on. The company eventually found Scott Sullivan, who 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 you've interviewed, who's uh, a very very experienced mine asset operator. He's a new blood coming to Paladin. He's very focused on reinventing Langer Heinrich for its restart. Uh, optimizing the asset, and I think that's what you know. My job was very different to, to to what Scott's was. Mine was to sort of crunch everything, you know, cut costs, uh, you know, run things on a shoestring. Whereas um, the asset needs to be positioned very differently for a restart. Uh, uh, you know, it needs to be optimized for a uh, what's probably going to be a very sustainable long term positive market in, in, in uranium. Um, so Scott, Scott, I think is, is really focused on that. And the, uh, the transition time when you came into Paladin, did you have, uh, did you have any, uh, transition work with, with John Borjoff and, and what are your thoughts on John and his abilities with deep yellow? Yes, John, um, uh, we overlapped for a little bit. And of course, I, I, I had had quite a bit to do with John in, in, in the lead up and, and sort of, you know, I was kind of informally involved with a few things around Paladin uh, in the lead up to, to my appointment. And, and we did, we had a short changeover. It might have been, I can't remember exactly now, it might have been a month or a few weeks. And I kept in contact with John afterwards. One thing I'll tell you, uh, when you run Paladin and, and you see the quality of the people in paladins and john's john's i think john one of john's amazing traits is uh to to attract the best quality people to whatever business he's running he's a inspirational leader and uh and and he attracts the most experienced capable people and uh that definitely was obvious to me when i joined paladin unfortunately you know we had to reduce our management team but you know that that's the way things go but and and we let we let some of the highest quality people go so so that's one thing about john the second thing is uh probably nobody knows the 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 assets and the exploration prospectivity of assets in the uranium space better than john so it it it's it, it's got into his blood with respect to deep yellow i can see his 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 traits are at work there where He's making progress on the assets in Namibia that I think surprising some people in terms of uh, certainly the the exploration approach on those assets uh, is achieving outcomes that's improving those assets. Um, secondly, you can see that he's attracted a lot of excellent people, uh, many of who were former Paladin uh, team members who've rejoined John over there. And you know, typically a, a, a sort of a, a company at the stage of development of Deep Yellow or its size, uh, wouldn't ordinarily be able to attract uh, this quality of person, but for the fact that, that, that these people are going there because they're very loyal to John and they enjoy uh, working for him and being inspired by him. So 
I think you know deep deep yellows one to watch and 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 we 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 set we certainly we we certainly watch it at the moment uh, for our OAM portfolio. And I want to ask you while we're on that topic, uh, you know, you're highly familiar with the entire sector. Are there any other companies or any other specific people that you'd like to mention to the audience that they should pay attention to? You know, in Australia, we have uh, we have Brandon Munro at uh, at Bannerman, who's who's uh, who's done a lot of work in uranium and looking at at the fundamentals of uranium, and he's 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 become uh, you know quite a quite a quite a solid authority on uh, on on the sector. So um, I think he's 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 one to you know follow on Twitter or um, or you know re- read the the information that Bannerman's put putting out. Uh, what's interesting, by the way, is uh, is that this the small group of of, of, of uranium focused fund managers. We all talk to each other, so you know we're in contact. Uh, the guys like Mark Al- Alkin and Marcelo Lopez, you know Guy Keller, who you, you've had on your show. We we all sort of stay in close communication. We we uh, we compare notes, if you like, on on, on what's happening in, in the sector. So um, and 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 in a weird way, I think. Um, we've all been very open with our views on companies and coming on shows like yours. So you, you get a lot from, you, you know, the benefit of institutional investing is you've got analysts and you've got uh, you've got the ability, you've got some horsepower to go through information. The companies come and roadshow to you, and they uh, you get one-on-one time with the companies. So so the information that that this group of guys is getting and and is sharing to the um, you know, the individual uranium investor, I think, is quite valuable. I think you want to listen to all of their podcasts, and uh, and and we're, we've all got slightly different. You know, I know I know my view in uh, on Cameco, for example, is a little toxic in the group. Uh, I, I I think pretty much everybody everybody else is is, is more positive Cameco, but um, you know, we've got different views on things, and I think you learn a lot by listening to that group uh, who are researching it in a lot of detail. And what are your thoughts on the long-term contracting process as far as terms that you would look for in a long-term supply deal? Can you expand a little bit on some details here? And what are what companies do you see the utilities approaching in this contracting cycle first? Okay, so I so in terms of um, contracting, I think uh, this is another point I think at which I differ from a lot of people is I think the spot price is becoming more and more important over time. So uh, more and more contracts you see over, you know, I've been, I've been following Uranium for, for almost a decade and, and more and more contracts you see uh, have, have a spot reference to them or are just, or are just fixed volumes with, with, with spot, uh, with complete spot reference. So, and there's a, you know, Iron ore used to be a, a, a fixed-term market, shorter-term but fixed-term market, and it it's basically uh, both iron ore and coal were, were that, and and they've they've become complete spot markets over time. Uh, one of the reasons is is that uh, Chinese buyers tend to have a preference for spot delivery. It it it, it um, you know from a governance standpoint, there could be no question about paying the spot price of the day of delivery. It's it, it doesn't it never looks like you've overpaid or or, or anything like that. So um, as China became the largest buyer in coal and iron ore, those industries moved to spot. 
I think uranium is moving in the same way as China becomes the largest buyer. Um, also, on the way down, when contracts were still being done, um, uh, having big spot, spot exposure is how some of the miners dealt with the lower fixed contract price. So, for example, there was a lot of contracts out there when, when the term reference price was like $35 or $38 a pound on the way down. A lot of miners kind of said, this price is really low and I, I know spot will... Will, will be higher in the delivery period. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll do a term, I'll do a contract where it's referenced 50% term, 50% spot. So, so, so to start with, I think that, uh, and, and contracts are getting shorter generally. So the spot, the spot market is becoming a more liquid market, more important market. So, so uranium recovery, I'm a little less focused on the return to contracting and a bit more focused on seeing increased liquidity and pricing in spot. And um, that's super important uh, to me. Now, uh, contracts, uh, there, will be, there, will be, there will be sort of fixed prices because it, it's as some element in certain contracts and utilities will realise that they, they need to do that to bring some of these care maintenance assets back on. When I look at contracting and, and, and what, are the first, what are the first assets that can get contracted, it's going to be the care and maintenance assets that are very well known to the utilities. So, uh, you know, Langer Heinrich at Paladin sold to utilities in uh, Korea, Japan, America. Um, uh, utility, nuclear utilities, they do a lot of due diligence on assets. So this is, a, this is an asset where they have a bank of due diligence. They've contracted with it before in the past. Uh, they probably need to update, do some site visits or whatnot. But, but that's a prime candidate for new contracting. I think uh, Boss Resources asset in Australia uh, it because it's a care and maintenance asset as well it's in Australia which is considered a, a tier one jurisdiction uh, I think other than that uh, you know juniors that are in the that have really good economics around their asset I actually think by the way I think as uranium once it gets permitted I think it's a prime candidate for contracting because it's a it's 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 a United States asset it's a um, it's a good size for contracting in terms of its production. Just could be done in one or two offtakes, and it's uh, the economics of production are um, you know are really sort of uh, a first class. So so I think that's a that's another one. I I, I, I you know utilities don't they don't tend to want to take a lot of permitting risk and what that's you know that's why things like when you look at this Berkeley project in Spain they sort of talked about doing these contracts early and they did do some contracts, but they weren't utility contracts. They were sort of contracts done to to traders and um, I, I wouldn't sort of call those good quality contracts. And, and so utilities are going to look for assets that are fully permitted, probably care and maintenance, and, and then go to the next wave of assets that are in, that are in first class national jurisdictions um, have been through the permitting process and are in um, are in are in strong positions. So, so say for next gen, for example, in fission in Canada, I believe they're still quite some ways off contracting because um, because uh, you know they still have to go through the permitting process and 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 that sort of puts them in a different category for utilities. It puts them a lot further off into the ether. Right. Yeah, and I think there's. <laughs> Both of those projects have construction risk. I know they would say that there yeah. is none, but but there is. I'm sorry. 
um, and from a from a financial and a constructability standpoint, which it's not proven out until we see it producing cake in a can at at capacity. And so that's that's the whole challenge. Um, yeah. And there's a lot long way to go there. So I want to move on. Just one more question on uranium, and then we'll move on to some other stuff real quick as we close out. But uh, how do you personally approach your investments in uranium? What is your strategy on how you go about structuring your portfolio? How we structured our portfolio is uh, I would call it a fully uranium exposed portfolio, but hedged within the industry. So our portfolio is currently constructed of uh, so 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 what we want is we want exposures to the juniors because a, a, as you know. Um, the beta, if you like. So, so, you know, if uranium price doubles, uh, the bigger benchmark companies' shares might double or triple, but there'll be a bunch of juniors whose whose projects become more real at those prices and they provide more leverage. And, um, and you know, their share prices might go up uh, seven, eight, nine, tenfold, right? So um, what we do is, 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 is at the moment we've got, I think around 12 or 13 stocks in the portfolio, and and we look down the tail. We've got we got we got a lot of tail. We got we got some Africa undeveloped projects in there. We've got uh, you know a lot of US exposure in, in our portfolio, and um, uh, things like Voss, as I said, we've got we've got that in the portfolio. So so the um, now now. We got it now. Now the first thing is, is we don't know how long it will take, so we need insurance against that. And also, we there is a small chance we're wrong, and so we need insurance against that. And now my insurance is Kazad and Prob. So right now uh, we're at about twenty eight percent of the portfolio, or 20, it, it varies a little bit depending on where we're at, cash wise or whatnot. But we're we're at the mid to high twenties percentage of portfolio invested in Kazad and Prom. Uh, that has been a great trade, by the way, because the, as this uranium market has taken a bit longer to move, Kazad and Prom has been basically continuing to re-rate. Uh, uh, it, 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 it was listed at a very much a discount to the kind of Cameco type valuation. And, and, and in my view, it's the real benchmark given it's making cash flow and it's um, it's got more pure exposure to a spot price increase. It's paying a dividend. So, so you know, Kazadam problem, we've been buying at, you know, 12, 13 US dollars a share. It's $15 uh, today. It's paid an 80 cent dividend uh, a couple of months ago. So, you know, we're very happy now. Now, now the reason why I also see Kazadam problem as insurance against the, the whole sector is, um, you know, the Kazakhs are the potential source of excess supply. So let's say um, the Kazakh, we have an emerging markets crisis and the Kazakh Tengi goes from 380, which is where it is now, down to 500, right? Uh, it would be very tempting at that point for Kazadamprom to churn out more uranium and, and not meet their, you know, their, their cutback targets. And if they were to do that, uh, they would delay the re-rating in the uranium market, but they themselves would make a lot of money and their stock could do very well. So, so we sort of have we sort of have Kazadamprom as a bit of insurance, and 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 and, and yet yet still exposed to a rising uranium price. And then we've got this portfolio of juniors that will be most of the performance 
if uh, if uranium does start to move. And, and the trick will be in the portfolio will be to uh, slowly reallocate from Kazatomprom as we get more and more confident that the uranium recovery is taking hold and will go all the way. And and you know and 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 particularly if we start to get a, a more certain belief of overshoot, then then what we what we do is we start to allocate away from Kazatomprom, you know, or, or benchmark ends of the stock of the sector into uh, more and more junior investment. Uh, so so that 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 will sort of be the 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 trick that's that's basically how, how we approach it we try to avoid companies that we think are going to have to raise very large amounts of capital relative to their to, to their to their market or are burning huge amounts of cash uh, or or for various reasons won't correlate well with uranium so so we, that's why we're sort of when you look at the benchmarks you look at cameco versus kazadamprom I could see no reason to buy a, a, a Cameco share over Kazadam Prom any day of the week. So that, that's how we deal with the benchmark side of it. And then, and then as you say, the, 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 you know, the rest of the portfolio, we sort of analyze on a company by company basis. Uh, we, we care about the management. We, we care about how straight their disclosure has been in the past. There's a lot of these companies doing these kind of dodgy contracts in uranium where, where they go, oh, I've just contracted for $43 a pound. And, and what you what you realise they've done is they've sold some volumes fixed at some other price. You don't know what that is, and they've 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 let the buyer option some volumes, and then they say that forty three dollars a pound somewhere in the footnote it will say that's the price of the average of of the average of fixed and option volumes. Well, the shareholder doesn't know what they actually sold the uranium for, so um, we we avoid those kind of companies, um, and yeah, we just we we, we sort of. Um, we build models on the assets generally. Uh, we look at permitting in a lot of detail and we, we're very realistic about it. You know, some of the, the Canadians uh, like NextGen and, and Fission, they're talking about very aggressive permitting timelines. Now, the last uranium mine that got permitted in Canada took seven years. Now, I'm not saying that you can't permit a uranium mine in Canada in two years, but, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to bank on that fact for my portfolio because you know experience tells me something else. So yeah, I, I hope that answered your question. It's uh... <laughs> no, no, that that's great, and and there's lots of extra good uh, points there. And and your your Kazata proposition is certainly interesting, and and I think uh, some people might be missing that. And uh, I appreciate you bringing up those points and and how you're approaching the sector. Yeah. Um, well, I want to get over to uh, Galena in a moment, but but tell us briefly, just just briefly, about the other companies that you're involved with uh, that you haven't mentioned. You know, so Azaga Metals uh, is a Russian exploration play. It's an interesting company. It's uh, uh, we we uh, myself and a few friends uh, bought the license directly from the Russian government. We we had to go in a public tender for it. Uh, we'd been prospecting that area for years and years. And um, we then put the license into the public company to drill it. We found copper immediately. Almost every drill hole we've hit has been in mineralization. It's actually for a maiden copper resource of 62 million tons at, you know, 0.4% copper and, 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 and more than almost 40 grams a ton silver. It's probably one of the biggest ever maiden resources for, for copper and silver. But uh, we're drilling that again uh, this fall. 
Uh, we're going to do the biggest ever drilling campaign. It's it's an unloved stock because it's Russia exposure, uh, but um, you know Russia's a great country. It's uh, there's a lot of support for development of projects. Uh, there's been a lot of M&A in Russia that's done very well. You can see in companies like uh, EMX, uh, the royalty company uh, made a lot of money selling their exposure to their big copper project out there. And um, it gets beaten up because of the uh, the sort of the, the headlines with what Putin's doing or whatnot, but uh, it's actually a very easy country to operate in. We never had any corrupt requests or anything like that. and. Uh, um, I found it uh, pretty easy. Um, so that, that that's one. Um, Metalla royalty and streaming uh, is a, uh, I really like it because it's taught me a lot about science uh, in the industry. It's a royalty company. Um, it started two years ago. It's, uh, it's, it's about four, four or five times larger than it was two years ago. We've acquired a portfolio of 54 royalties. Um, we're already cash flow positive. We're paying a monthly dividend, um, and it's all down to uh, you know it's 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 a lot down to the CEO Brett Heath and the team. Um, uh, his his ability to identify really good royalties where the counterparts. So, so this isn't a royalty company that issues new royalties for pre-development projects. What we do is we buy secondary royalties in the market. We find. Uh, uh, a bunch of aging prospectors that might own a royalty on a on a Agnico Eagle property, or we find a publicly listed coal company that happens to, through history, just own a royalty on a barrack property. And uh, you know, we seek these things out and we we buy them at value, and um, uh, we we have a suite of royalties with with global first class counterparties in terms of who owns those projects, and uh, you know. Royalty investing is a great way to invest in precious metals um, because you have a more diversified portfolio. You have, uh, you know, as, as a result of that, you have less specific mine risk um, and you still have leveraged exposure to gold and silver. So, so you know, that, that, that stock has done very well. The company is doing very well. It's around $150 million Canadian market cap today. and um, I, I really encourage people to look at that one from, you know, for the sort of the precious metals quotient in their in their diversified portfolio. Okay. And let me ask you, let me ask you about that briefly. Um, how do you see Metalla comparing to a Mavericks metals or a Sandstorm gold? So um, we, I, I see the portfolio we're putting together is, um, it is is better or or, or you know ha, has probably even less risk in it um so uh now we're definitely smaller i think um when you look at a company like mavericks what's interesting about these companies is is the hardest part is the first couple of years and getting to about that 150 200 million dollar market cap because you can only acquire royalties with equity and you're using your stock or your ability to place shares to investors off a, off a small market cap to buy royalties and you're competing. Uh, and as I said, you know, the counterparties, a lot of these royalties, you know, our royalty counterparts are Agnico Eagle and Barrick and, New, you know, Gold Corp, these kind of counterparts. So, so uh, but what you find with these companies is 
once you achieve the first stage of critical mass, which is about 150 to 200 million, and you have a genuine diversified portfolio, and you have cash flow coming from that portfolio, you can suddenly inject leverage into the into the into the process, which means um, you know you could you you could you can take on you know a uh, 50 million dollar loan or whatnot, and and uh, and that that is. In my view, that is the inflection point for these royalty companies. You, the moment you introduce leverage into the into the model, um, you can really accelerate even faster the the growth in the value of the equity. So your first stage of value of equity is relying on a smart guy like Brett Heath to to wedge out these royalties from wherever he can uncover them, you know, really good quality ones and negotiate good deals, then uh, then you get to put, you know, an accelerant behind that, uh, which is being able to place a little bit of leverage in it. And when you look at, say, the evolution of these companies, like uh, in particular Mavericks is the more recent one to evolve, you, you see when they get to that point, uh, here's a $200 million company that ends the year as a billion dollar company. Like it's that, it happens that quickly their ability to put some leverage in and accelerate their development. And, and Metal is really at the cusp of this stage. Um, and so whilst you could say it's done very, very well, it's now is like really the time at which it can slingshot into sort of the $500 million to billion dollar type company range quite quickly. Uh, very interesting. No, I, I uh... Appreciate the the comments on that, and, and certainly one that we've watched. And, and Mavericks is one that we hold and at Smith Weekly yep. as a recommendation, and and Sandstorm as well, actually. But Mavericks Mavericks has been a nice performer, and, and Mattel has been one that we uh, have watched, but we're not able to to get into yet. But we're watching still. Um, well, let's move on. Let's go to uh, Galena. Uh, give yep. us an overview of the company, the capital structure, and the key shareholders. So Galena is. Um is an interesting uh, company. It's un it's only two years old, and um, but but uh, it basically has the best undeveloped base metals project in Australia in terms of uh, when you look at uh, the risk profile of the project and the the IRR for developing that project just using spot current spot prices. For it's a it's a lead and silver project. It's in Western Australia, very you know, which is a great mining jurisdiction. It's fully permitted, uh, has no all of its native title type arrangements have been resolved. Um, it currently has a market cap of about 140 million Australian dollars. It's it's 30 35 percent owned by the board and management team. So uh, it's the ultimate skin in game company. It, it is really a really strong team of people who are working together in a cooperative sense. So, you know, I, I have a tremendous support of my fellow directors there um, uh, on, on this project. Now, um, we're, we're also extremely, so, 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 so the project is, is, is basically a, a 16 year mine life uh, uh, to produce 95,000 tons a year of lead and and uh, and, um, and and 805,000 ounces a year of silver, and 
the pre-production capital is 170 million Australian dollars. Off that, it produces, using current spot prices, an EBITDA of around 114 million Australian dollars. So it has a very high, has a net present value of 553 million Australian dollars. The the IRR, uh, you know, the, the internal rate of return of investment is about 40%, which is very, very high for a, a you know, a base metals project in a, you know, in a non-risky jurisdiction. It has a first quartile C1 direct catch cost of lead production. So uh, it, ticks, it ticks every box. Um, now, the most interesting thing about this company, though, at, at its stage of development is it has about $100 million worth of equity available to it. So we, we have about $35 million of cash in the bank today. We have uh, our project is being developed in joint venture with Toho Zinc of Japan, who, who own 40% uh, of the project and have the right to uh, offtake 40% of the material. So Toho uh, provide, will provide a closing tranche for that investment of $60 million. Um, and then we've got some other sort of option proceeds coming in that are way in the money or whatnot. So, so we, we sort of have $100 million of equity available, which is a, a lot when, you, when you're talking about a CapEx bill of $170 million. And um, we have already commenced some of the basic initial construction activities on that project. We've ordered our camp, uh, it's being fact manufactured now. We've, we've put the water production bores in place. We've uh, ordered some long lead time items. And, um, you know, we'll be basically starting the, uh, the works on site uh, imminently. Um, and right now we're, we're also going through a bank financing process to finalise the, uh, uh, the remaining capital, which is, which is going to be a, a, a bank loan. We, we've got uh, seven banks in, in that process uh, doing due diligence and whatnot and, and discussing terms with us on that. It's a great company. It's very, very... It's a relatively unknown company. It was only listed two years ago. Only has 800 shareholders, which is unknown and unloved for an ASX company of our stage. And in a way, that's where it's an opportunity. It's already there's already 12 institutions on the register. They they sort of been nibbling at it. They could certainly own own a lot more. But uh, in a weird way, it's a it's a sort of a, it's a it's an underpromoted company. Uh, it's not. It's not really known by retail, and, and, and there's the opportunity for, 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 for individual investors to take a look at it and, 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 and sort of come alongside uh, the smart institutional money and, 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 the, uh, and the board of management team. And Alex, uh, how about uh, the timing there on construction, assuming you guys get financing here in the next few months or... Uh, what's the construction time frame look like, and are you guys uh, fully fully prepared to go in as operators and, and handle things? Yeah, so so we we have a we have an operating team. We have a one of our directors uh, who's an executive director, Tony James, is one of the most experienced uh, builders of underground mines in in Western Australia. He he, together with our chief operating officer Troy Flannery, is. Um, lead our technical team. Troy is a former GM level mining engineer employee at uh, Newcrest, the big gold, gold, gold mining company in Australia. Um, we've, we, we have uh, a full deck of, um, you know, we, we do our mining engineering in-house, metallurgy. Uh, we, we have, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're continuing to build out the team for construction. We have another uh, three positions where, 
uh, we're joining this year, which is uh, we're joining uh, this month. Sorry, which is um, you know all about being able to deploy to site next month um, in terms of just making sure we've got our site supervision all all, all intact. We have a project director who came from the Roy Hill mine, one of the biggest iron ore developments in Australia in the last 10 years. You know, we're, we're absolutely ready to build it. Uh, and uh, we, we have already started building it. As I say, we've, you know, we've, we've started to knock away some of the earlier items uh, for the project. Uh, I wouldn't say, we're not in full construction, I'm not saying that, but we, you know, we're definitely doing all the site preparation work and, uh, you know, getting some of the infrastructure in place to, to, to make sure that the, when we do go into full construction, that goes more smoothly. And how about how many shares are out uh, with the company right now? And can you share with us just kind of a ballpark average of where management owns shares as far as cost base? The shares out uh, as 365 million shares out. So the current share price is, is around 37, 38 cents Australian per share. Management cost base is, uh, is generally around sort of the best way to look at it is, is sort of around the IPO price level. Now, the IPO was two, two years ago around about four cents. So it's been a hugely successful company since listing because of the success of drilling the resource and coming up with a lot of high grade material and then going straight through scoping study PFS, getting the 90 the Toho's investment is a total of ninety million dollars. So we, 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 you know, we announced that that was a that 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 doubled the share price when we announced that uh, conclusion of approvals. I, I, I've almost never seen a company go this quickly from a six million dollar IPO in September of two thousand seventeen. This company's not even two years listed yet, and since that time we've done a maiden resource, three massive drilling campaigns, a scoping study, a PFS got a $90 million investment from a strategic counterparty, concluded the permitting process, concluded the DFS, concluded the native title arrangements, and uh, commenced the early stage works of, uh, of building the infrastructure and preparing site for full construction. Well, will management be, uh, management's probably got some of the warrants that you mentioned, and then also uh, financings, a little bit of the financings along the way, has, has management been involved with those as well? Yeah, management's generally, so management's got some options as well. And, uh, you know, management's generally participated in uh, the placements and, uh, and, and IPO and whatnot. So um, we, we've only done, we only did the IPO, a $6 million, and then we did one $9 million placement. Otherwise, there's been no sort of uh, dilutive capital raised. Okay. And what are the plans over the next year? And is the company... Uh, are you guys looking at the end to to find a suitor as you guys bring this into production? Uh, give us give us kind of the time frame over the next maybe twelve to eighteen months. What you're doing? Um, well, we're 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 really just focused on right now. Um, well, we 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 have been doing some more drilling, so we'll get a a, a new resource. will come out soon. Um, we're still concluding the offtake on the non-Toho sixty percent of production. I think we're we're going to do a very attractive deal there, and um, you know the main thing is concluding the bank financing as soon as possible, and then moving into the bank financing will be the trigger for us to sign the EPC contract for the plant, 
and to sign the underground mining contractor to deploy them. So uh, we we believe we'll be in full construction by the end of this year. And then it's a 15 month ramp up and uh, sorry, a 15 month construction period and then and and then and then we're 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 getting the benefits of the cash flow. So our, our plan is to build it. There's a lot of optionality around this asset, by the way. There's a there's there's a copper gold zone at depth, which uh, which we've drilled a little bit into, but uh, we plan to drill that more once we have underground workings. That that could very well be uh, sort of a big extension upside for the lead zinc mine, uh, sorry, the lead silver mine, um, and we also have uh, some other exploration targets that look a lot like our main Abra deposit did from a geophysical context. Uh, so we'll be um, we'll be doing some more exploration on those as well. So uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, being in construction, building it, getting the cash flow. Um, uh, you never say no to suitors, but, but but this is not being set up, you know, as as a sale. We we absolutely have brought in the experience and the capability to build this mine. Uh, we continue to add to the team every day. We've succeeded in getting all our engineering studies done to the highest level, all of our permitting done. So you can't fault our, our operating capabilities to date. And the company is incredibly attractively valued compared to the cash flow that will be coming down uh, very soon. So a credible management team needs to be open to suitors should that emerge. But uh, the value that can be created from simply building this in the, in, as quickly as possible and, and, and enjoying the fruits of that $114 million a year of uh, EBITDA and paying dividends to our shareholders is, uh, uh, you know, really underwrites the, the potential for, for, for value creation for our shareholders. Very well. Well, why should investors, uh, potential investors that are listening, be considering Galena at these price levels? What would you say to potential investors listening? Well, I think I think when you when you look at what sort of a base metals company would typically trade at when it's getting towards the point of the kinds of cash flows that we're talking about developing, and remember that that we fully finance the equity for the project, so you don't have the risk of saying, "Oh, how many shares are they going to have to issue at what price." Um, and do I need to take that into account? The shares are done. Uh, we just need to get the bank loan finalised, and um, you know, and, and and then and then that cash flow is is yours. And um, so when you look at what a company, you know, if current spot lead and silver price were remained the same, um, looking at different metrics like peer group EV does or looking at forward looking net present value per share, that sort of thing. You know, the company should be trading at three to four times the current share price uh, as we continue to achieve these 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 metrics. So that that's I think the proposition for investors. Very low risk. We're, we, we, we're not we don't mention any risky jurisdictions. Uh, we're talking about an LME base metal and and some silver. So 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 very good commodities to be exposed to. All of our numbers are done at spot prices. We're not asking you to look at you know, but buy into a, a higher commodity price. You know, I, I think this is one of the more vanilla, defendable stories. It's the, the, the underlying asset quality is everything here. The, the ability to be able to produce great NPVs and IRRs using the most reasonable engineering and financial assumptions 
uh, is a testament to the quality of the asset. It's just a really good high grade contiguous asset that through metallurgical testing gets high metallurgical recoveries and produces a very, very high quality lead concentrate. Well, I appreciate the information. It's certainly one that uh, that I have not been aware of uh, until recently. So it's something that, that we, we might be looking at here a little bit harder over the coming months. How can uh, folks best reach out to you and also the company for more information? Well, I mean, the, the, the website for Galena is uh, www.galenamining.com.au. You could go to the website or you could just email me at alex at galenamining.com.au. I'm sure you can Google me and find, find, find where I am. You can follow me on Twitter and message me that way if you want. No worries. I, I think most people will find I'm pretty open to dealing with retail and, you know, individual investor queries. I treat them the same way as I would treat an institutional investor query. There's a lot of stuff you can't answer uh, because of listing rules and, you know, things that must be treated confidentially. But if I can answer a question, I will. I, I won't ignore it. Well, Alex, uh, it's been fantastic. We really appreciate the insights and, and all the different topics we covered. And it's really been a pleasure talking with you. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for all the time.